0: We piled them up something awful as they came. One little machine gunner laid them down as fast as they advanced. Private Bernard Spellen, Company H, 112th Infantry, American Expeditionary Force, FEMET, August 27, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode SA15. Theme and FEMET, house to house in the Great War. So, this episode comes to you from three BFWWP listeners. Justin, Aaron, and Bob. All three of these stand-up guys emailed over a period of five months and asked if I would ever cover FIM and FIMET. And here we are. On March 21, 1918, the Imperial German Army had launched the first of its massive spring offensives, initiating the onslaught known as the Kaiserschlacht. The first blow struck on the Somme, smashing into an unprepared British field army there. The second blow came just two and a half weeks later on the Lys where the Germans sliced through the Portuguese expeditionary corps and broke through the trench lines. At the end of May, a month and a half later, they slammed into the French on the N, and just under two weeks later, hammered the Allied line in the vicinity of Noyon and Montdidier. Each time, the Germans cut deep into Allied territory— carving out deep belts of land and causing hundreds of thousands of casualties. None of these battles, however, struck the decisive blow. The German attacks ran out of steam at some critical point, or the Allies pulled their lines together. Each push strained the Allies, their lines, and their reserves, but they did not break. German Quartermaster General Erich Ludendorff was the principal architect behind these massive offensives. Despite blow after blow, the Allies weren't breaking or collapsing in the spring and on into the summer of 1918. And there was an ever-growing problem on top of that. The United States had entered the war on the Allied side, and by summer, the American Expeditionary Force had 22 mammoth infantry divisions in France, the Battle of Numbers was steadily tipping in the Allies' favor. Ludendorff had a two-part plan for what was to definitely be the knockout blow this time. It would be called the Friedensturm, or the Peace Offensive, because it would finally bring peace on Germany's terms. Within the first couple of weeks of July, the Germans would launch another attack that would take out the French salient around the front city of Rheim. After they defeated the French, Ludendorff would launch a final assault on the British around the Ypres salient and defeat them once and for all. This was going to be it. However, there was a problem. French military intelligence already knew of the impending attack. The French army was already planning a counterattack that would sledgehammer the Bosch and send his forces reeling. A German attack would potentially make things better for the French as it would tie down German forces, extend their supply and communication lines, and leave them open to being cut off and annihilated. The German assault came on the 15th of July. Before they could even begin their preparatory barrages, French artillery began soaking the German lines with shells. The Germans had been found out. Nevertheless, After a four-hour artillery barrage of their own, the Germans launched an attack from Chateau-Thierry all the way out to Massige in eastern Champagne. The front camper made some headway into the sector running from Chateau-Thierry to Rheim, where units of the French 5th Army buckled and bent under the weight of the attacks. Between Rheim and Massige, however, French General Henri Gouraud's 4th Army successfully parried most German assaults. The Germans were quickly burned out, and Ludendorff quickly began prepping his forward units to be ready to pull back from all ground south of the River Marne. He wasn't fast enough. The French 10th and 6th Armies launched their counterattacks at 0520 on the 18th of July on the left of the Germans' Marne salient, from Soissons to Chateau Thierry. Combined American and French forces under the command of General Charles Mongin simply swept the exhausted Germans aside, beginning the collapse of the Marne salient that so strained the Allied front. Montjean's counterattack also signaled that from here on out, the Allies would be dictating the battles, not the Germans. With the evacuation order from the German 7th Army out, A fighting retreat began as the beleaguered Germans began pulling back from recently reconquered lands. Open warfare, or at least limited open warfare, returned to the battlefield. Trench positions no longer had the dominant say in how and where battles would be fought. The battlefield was now becoming ever more fluid, ever more confused, and constantly shifting. American infantry divisions, numbering around some 28,000 men and thus twice as strong as Allied divisions, participated in the steady pursuit of the retreating but ever dangerous enemy. Through late July, one of those American divisions was the 28th Pennsylvania Keystone Division. The Germans masterfully conducted their pullback, everywhere using rivers as natural barriers to their pursuers. The crossing of the River Urk saw heavy fighting along with further bloody battles at Bois de Grimpet and Hill 220 near Cormont, northeast of Chateau Thierry. By the end of July, the 28th was relieved by the U.S. 32nd Red Arrow Division for refit, although the 28th was to maintain close liaison with the 32nd. By the 4th of August, the German army had pulled back behind the river Vell, meaning the Marne salient had ceased to exist. The front line was back where it had been at the end of May. The doughboys of the 32nd Division, having received their baptism into combat after relieving the 28th, now faced the town of Fim. It was still occupied by the Germans and would have to be cleared out. Following that development, where the war had changed from static positional warfare to one of limited maneuver, the fighting in FIME was going to see something not much seen in the Great War—urban warfare. Femme sits on the southern bank of the river Vell, on the N31 road between the cities of Soissons to the west and Rheim to the east. Its sister village of Fimet sits across the Vell on the north bank, and the two are connected now by a memorial bridge dedicated to the men of the U.S. 28th Division. Before the war, the town had a sizable and significant population of some 3,000 people and was a local manufacturing center. In the early months of the war, theme was given up by the retreating French as the German juggernaut rolled over the countryside. French engineers blew the bridge to slow the enemy down, Following their defeat at the Battle of the Marne, it was the Germans' turn to give up FEME and the area around it. The bridge between the two towns was rebuilt in 1916. When the trench lines in the N front froze the front line, FIM became a waypoint for the evacuation of wounded troops through its rail lines. Due to their proximity to the front, FIME and FIMET were under bombardment range for much of the war, and by 1918, Had been thoroughly devastated. On the 4th of August, doughboys of the 3rd Battalion of the 127th Infantry Regiment attacked toward Femme. The battalion, already down to just 360 men, ran across some 2,000 meters of open ground under horrific machine gun and artillery fire from the Germans. It was during these actions that 1st Lieutenant Ray Dickup and his orderly Private Wilford Lloyd, both earned the Distinguished Service Cross for their actions under fire. Near Chazelle Farm on the edge of Feam, Lieutenant Dickup was struck several times by enemy fire. Knowing he was mortally wounded, he ordered his company forward and led the charge until he fell dead. Private Lloyd was hit with the same burst of fire. Having lost his weapon, Lloyd grabbed a rifle from a dead soldier and continued with his company's charge. Very quickly, 2nd Battalion was called in to support, and together the remnants of both units broke into the ruined town. Fighting continued over the next two days as the Americans slowly cleared the shattered streets and homes of Germans. In a week's fighting, the 32nd Division had taken some 4,600 casualties. In recognition of their efforts, French General Charles Mangin nicknamed the division Les Terribles, and the name stuck. On the 7th of August, the tired men of the 32nd Division were relieved by the men of the 28th. The Pennsylvania doughboys were back in the fight. The ultimate objective for them was a plateau four kilometers north of Femme, but more locally, two spurs of high ground to the northwest of the town would need to be taken too. Bridgeheads across the Vell needed to be established as well so that future operations could jump from them. The 112th Infantry Regiment of the 28th took over the line from their fellow soldiers of the Red Arrow Division. Colonel George Rickards reported on the takeover. Excerpts from his report come to us from James Murren's 1919 history titled With the 112th in France, A Doughboy's Story of the War. Tuesday evening, August 6th, Rickards wrote, orders were received to relieve the 125th and 126th Infantries by the 112th Infantry and the 109th Machine Gun Battalion in the advance line south of Femme. The 2nd Battalion, Captain Phelps commanding, was sent to the town of Femme. The 3rd Battalion was conducted by an officer of the 126th Infantry to Le Grand Marais, which is west of the sector designated for this regiment. 1st Battalion, with the Machine Gun Company and HQ Company, was held in reserve. One company, 109th Machine Gun Battalion, less one platoon, was posted on the high ground in Bois de la ribonne and another at Ambion. The PC of the 2nd Battalion was at Chazelle, 3rd Battalion in the ravine southeast of Le Monils. The 1st Battalion and regimental headquarters at the intersection of the travigny Fime, mont saint martin roads. The relief of the two regiments was completed about 3.30 a.m. Reconnaissance made during the early morning developed that the river at these points averaged from 20 to 35 feet wide, 4 to 6 feet deep, mud-bottom, marshy approaches, with wire entanglements in bottom of river and on the banks, making it impossible, of course, to cross except over the ruined bridge connecting Fîme and Fîmette. A small bridge was constructed by the pioneer platoon of the regiment at Le Grand Savar, on the western end of Fime. Bois du Diable, Les Grands Bois, La Gravette, two and including Fîmette, were filled with enemy troops armed principally with machine guns. During the day, August 7th, a quiet hunt was made for snipers and machine gun nests, which not only familiarized the troops with the surrounding terrain, but which succeeded in cleaning out many of these nests. The work of machine guns and snipers in the village of Fumet became very aggravating. The Major General visited my post, and it was decided that a barrage would be put on at 7 o'clock in the evening, and accordingly, Preparations for an attack on the place were made. The bombardment roared that hot summer night at 7 p.m. as ordered, quote, with the sky that night brightly illumined with a thousand barking guns, or it seemed that way at least, unquote. Shells screamed into fumet, and the ruins crumbled and shattered under this terrible pounding. In the early hours of August 8th, the American assault began, with doughboys rushing across the new footbridge and the older stone bridge to get into the smaller of the two towns. As doughboys ran into fumet, German machine gun fire hammered out, and men began to jerk and twist violently as bullets cut into their bodies. The Americans had made it in, though, and the surviving doughboys took the ruins. They could not, however, hang on to them. As battalions on either flank had not advanced far enough, Those men in Fumet were forced to withdraw. A new attack was planned for later on, and at 4 a.m. the next morning, a new attack was launched. This attack failed, so a third assault was decided upon. After a brutal two-and-a-half-hour bombardment of Fumet, the men of the 112th launched themselves at it again. Quote, Fighting from one wall to another, From house to house and popping grenades, whenever the chance offered, the 2nd Battalion got a real taste of hand-to-hand fighting that memorable afternoon. But when the day ended, Fimet was in the possession of the 112th Infantry. The Germans replied by shelling everything in the area with gas and HE that evening, forcing the tired doughboys to constantly don and remove their protective masks and the shelling went on throughout much of the days to come, increasing the nightmarish aspects of this particular battlefield. James Murren recounted conditions in FEM in his history with the 112th in France. He wrote, So hot was the fighting and shellfire in the Femes sector and along the Vell that in one small patch of woods where the pioneer platoon was located, a dozen fallen American soldiers lay unburied. The stench of decaying flesh, of gas-infested woods, and of, of exploding shells was oftentimes sickening. It was a matter of using a dugout every minute of the day when shells were whistling, crashing, and resounding through the woods or in the town itself. As with the battalions from the 32nd Division, the 112th Infantry had to be relieved by August 9th. They were relieved by the 111th Infantry, who took over the line. By the 9th, the front line ran through Fimet, with neither American nor German fully occupying the ruined village. If you're not driving, point your smartphone map application to FIME, F-I-S-M-E-S, France, and locate the Memorial Bridge in the center of the city. If you cross the bridge heading north, coming from FIM, you will see to the left is the Rue charles le The next narrow street up from Rue charles le is called sentier des rampart and up from that is the Rue maurice des The Americans had a bridgehead across the Vell with two tenuous supply links, the shattered bridge that still allowed foot traffic and the footbridge built by the 28th Division's engineers. From the river, the Rue charles was both the American front line and the rear of the front line. There was a barricade made of rubble, barrels, and furniture blocking the street to the west and defended by doughboys. For the 111th Infantry, the quote-unquote front of the front, as the French called the actual firing line, this was the Sentier des Rampart, which translates to Ramparts Trail. On the north side of the Sentier de Rempart was a stone wall of varying height. This stone wall was the forwardmost line of the Americans, and it was where Bob Hoffman would spend much of the next five days hunkering down out of sight. This was known as the Cocky Line. The Rue Maurice Desautets was largely recognized as the German front line, and it was called the Blücher Line. In 1918, the Rue Maurice des constituted the edge of Fimette. The 111th Regiment had two men in its ranks, William Hervey Allen and Robert Collins Hoffman, who would go on to write memoirs of their time in FIME and Fimet. Allen would write Toward the Flame, amongst other noted works of poetry and fiction, and Hoffman would pen I Remember the Last War, for publication in 1940 as an isolationist warning against involvement in the Second World War. Bob Hoffman, of course, is better remembered as the father of weightlifting and the owner of the York Barbell Company. Herbie Allen wrote of the battle handover process, Quote, I reported myself to a captain of the 112th Infantry, who, it turned out, was commanding the battalion in infime at that time, told him where we were, and asked him what he wanted us to do. I learned from him that the situation was something like this. Part of the 112th Infantry were in a little town across the river called Fimet, where they were directly in touch with the enemy, fighting day and night. Fime itself was, for the most part, ours. Germans were thought to still be in some of the houses sniping or scattered along the railroad near the river. Most of the captain's battalion was scattered through Fiem in the cellars, and there was a part of the 109th Machine Gun Battalion near the town hall. During the day, a more or less stealthy manhunt went on from house to house with occasional brisk fights, while the enemy shelled the town constantly from the heights across the river, throwing shells down into Fiem, sometimes in a barrage and sometimes intermittently. There was scarcely any time... When you could not hear one bursting somewhere, followed by the slide and crumbling of brick and plaster or the tinkle of glass. Having occupied the town for so long himself, Fritz was disgustingly familiar with it, and he knew all the best places to shell. Unquote. Hoffman reported from across the river in Fimet. In his memoir, he wrote that, quote, While those who were on the far side, of the river believed that we held the entire town. We had just part of Fimet. The Prussian Guard held the other half, and during much of our stay here, they were right across the street, never very far up the street. I'll try to paint a brief picture of this single street in the town of Fimet where so much action was to take place. Podcaster's note Hoffman is about to describe the Rue Charles Ledru. Theme was the older part of town, the principal part. Evidently, Fumet had been built along what had once been a country road. The houses extended out to the sidewalk and were made of the usual stone and plaster. They were built solidly against each other up this long, single street of the town. Every house had its cellar and garret covered with red tile. Uniformity of building construction is one of the rules in France. On the opposite side of the street possibly 40 feet from front door to front door of the houses which lined each side, were houses whose backyards extended in a gentle slope down to the river, perhaps 200 yards away. But the houses on our side were set right against a steep hill. Almost at the end of the short backyards of these houses was Hunland, for they were close enough to be shooting flares down to us with their very pistols and the range of such implements was short. The street was comparatively straight as it extended through Fremant, and then it took a turn to the right up the hill toward the German lines. It was from this direction that the almost constant counterattacks came. At the ends of the comparatively short and steep backyards was a stone wall that extended parallel with the street clear to the end of town. Podcasters note this is the Sentier de Rémpart today. Although somewhat straight, it varied in height, at some few points being as high as a man's head, and at other points being little more than a marker approximately two feet high. This was to be our front line for the days of our Battle of Fimet. Above this were gardens, farms, orchards, vineyards, and farther up, woods, It was as much as a man's life was worth to look over the wall, but I did catch a glimpse of it at times and saw that a young pear orchard was just over the wall from my particular part of the line. I could see a haystack up the field, and it was from there that many of our men met their deaths. The Germans were hidden by the hay and were sniping and firing machine guns from that vantage point. Unquote. No sooner had Hoffman and his company reached the uneven wall when they received the order to attack. Doughboys climbed over the wall with no real objective other than going over the top. It was early morning, but the Germans could see enough in the pre-dawn gloom and let out intersecting scythes of machine gun fire. Hoffman wrote that, quote, we advanced possibly 50 yards, unquote. Several of his men were left dead or wounded in the orchard. A red rocket was sent up calling for artillery. It came in and landed amongst Hoffman and his comrades. The wall had to be temporarily abandoned until the barrage was over. At the end of the abortive attack, Hoffman was the senior ranking NCO left in charge of the entire line. All of the officers had been killed or wounded. The situation in the Fimet Bridgehead became increasingly grim, Gunfire was constantly exchanged between doughboys on the cocky line and the Germans further up the slope. Sniper and machine gunfire remained constant threats, and the Germans were relentless with their shelling. The men of the 111th dug through the cellars on the Rue charles with shovels and hose to connect them in one continuous tunnel complex. Resupplying the men in Fumet became extremely difficult, as the two bridges were under constant watch and bombardment by the Germans. Hoffman and the dwindling men under his command were always out of grenades and low on rifle ammunition. Just as it was hard to get supplies into Fimet, it was just about impossible to get the wounded out. Wounded members of the 112th stayed in Fimet when the 111th took over, and within minutes, members of the latter unit joined their ranks in the cellars. Things were confused, and wild rumors abounded. Bob Hoffman reported that, quote, There was a rumor at the time that the guns behind us were being directed by a German officer. Later, he had been shot by his own sergeant when it was learned that he had been killing the Americans. We were always hearing rumors. Few of them had any basis of fact, unquote. Similar to other World War I battlefields, the dead were everywhere. Hoffman wrote that burying them was out of the question, so the bodies of fallen doughboys, quote, had been piled like logs of wood in the lower rooms of houses. It was August, you must remember, and flies swarmed by the millions in this place where the dead had held sway for so long, end quote. Following the 111th Infantry's failed attack beyond the low wall, the Germans above them increased their barrage of both machine gun and trench mortar fire on the American bridgehead. After shoring up the cocky line as best as possible with the surviving men and talking to another lieutenant, Lieutenant Hervey Allen decided that he was going to cross the Vell by the footbridge and get word back to battalion command on how desperate things were in Fumet. If We did not receive reinforcements and ammunition and get the help of a barrage on the hillside to clean the enemy out, we should not long be able to hold the town, he wrote in his memoir, Toward the Flame. Allen's ordeal just to get across the Vell, a river to the French, but really a glorified stream now swollen with summer rains, is an example of a theme that returns to me time and again in my research for the podcast. That theme is one of the superhuman amount of work put in by the combatants on both sides of the wire. The amount of sheer effort and sweat and labor to get things done by these men and women is nothing short of stupefying. An excerpt from Allen's memoir will illustrate the amount of effort involved. Quote, It had been my intention at first to cross by the bridge, but one look at the barrage falling there marked it off the slate of possibilities. There was a barrage all along the riverfront, but especially heavy at the bridge. The shells arriving there and along the stream were very large ones, throwing up immense fountains of liquid mud and exploding in the water with a peculiar muffled crack and roar. As I watched them, I nearly turned back. It seemed such a futile task Only a fool would have dashed out. A little study showed that away from the bridge there were considerable intervals of time between shells and that they were pretty well scattered. I also noted a small drainage ditch across the field running down to the river. Along this was the path which led to the ruined wooden footbridge now floating level with the water and partly shot away. I could see the tangle of it from Vimet, through the barrage, haze, Feme looked miles away, the white houses standing out more plainly in the sun. The ditch was the only thing that could enable one to reach the river. My body lay in the hollow, so the machine gun barrage went over me. It took me about half an hour to crawl to the river. I had to put my mask on at the last as the mustard gas was strung in the little hollow in which I lay. My hands were smarting, Some of the shells brought my heart into my mouth. Lying there waiting for them was intolerable. I was sure I was going to be blown to pieces. The river was very nearly in flood, and so there was no bank, the field gradually getting soggy and swampy till it sloped out into the water. There was a lot of submerged barbed wire that made going ahead very painful and slow. I had, of course, to throw away my mask as it got full of water. My pistol went also. It was too heavy to risk. Once in the water, I worked under the single board of the footbridge, shifting along hand over hand, which took me halfway across. There I struck out, plunging in a few strokes to the other side and working through the wire. Swimming with shoes was not so difficult as I had thought, but the cold water seemed to take all my courage, which was what I needed more than ever. Our own machine guns were playing along the railroad track on our side of the river. After getting across... It seemed for a while that I would be caught between the two fires. I lay there in the river for a minute and gave up. When you do that, something dies inside. Then I saw the culvert under the track leading into the hole where we had lain during the barrage of the night before. I crawled through this and into the dugout at its edge, taking great care not to show myself for fear some of our own snipers might pick me up. The luxury of that place was immense. I was safe there, safe, for a few minutes. I forgot everything but my own escape. The river had washed most of the mustard gas off, too. Only my eyes still smarted. A very few minutes, however, brought on a nausea that made me afraid I should not be able to cover the rest of my trip. I crawled out of the dugout very warily, still afraid of our own machine guns and the guns across the river that had picked us up the day before and finally made way through the ruined steel mill which kept me out of sight most of the distance. It had a long shed. Then I took the little path straight up to the barn behind the club which we had occupied and, shoving the door aside, stepped into the courtyard and sat down. Some of the machine gun men there jumped up rather startled and then came over to give me a lift, but I was able to go on all right after a few minutes breathing and made my own way to the major's dugout. Allen reported the actual situation in Fumet and was able to have the American artillery to create a protective horseshoe of falling shells around the bridgehead across the Vell. He returned after dark with the needed reinforcements of men and ammunition. Combat remained a near constant, and the Germans were constantly working to eliminate the doughboys and retake the entirety of Fumet. They launched an attack on the Rue charles le Having dug those tunnels to connect the cellars, Sergeant Bob Hoffman and his men were ready to face them. Quote, Sure enough, firing and explosion of grenades started up the Rue Servante. Podcaster's note, best as I can tell, the Rue Servante is now the Rue Charles dru I quickly gathered a group of my men, and we dashed down into the cellar below us, then worked our way as fast as we could through the holes in the stones of the cellars. I distributed these men throughout each house, and I myself went on to the last house in the block which we had tunneled. I was hardly in place when I saw the Germans coming down the street. Clumpity-clump they were going, with their high boots and huge coal-bucket helmets. I can see them coming yet, bent over, rifle in one hand, potato-masher grenade in the other, husky, red-faced young fellows, their eyes almost popping out of their heads as they dashed down the street, necks red and perspiring. Far down the street was the barrier usually occupied by the Americans. They were centering their attack on that part of the town and never dreamed that we were in the houses so far up the street. It would have been impossible for us to be there if it were not for the work we had done the day before. I was standing back in the small hall of this house on the corner when in popped a powerful young German. They didn't see me. was not quite light and his eyes could not penetrate the semi-darkness of the interior of the house. He leaned well out of the doorway, planning to run to another doorway. This was their usual system in making an attack. What was I to do? What would you have done? Shoot at close quarters? Yell at him to turn around and then fight a duel with him? Or just stick the bayonet in him? I chose the latter system as being the safest and easiest. He was so surprised and died there on the end of my bayonet, unquote. Hoffman and his company killed the attackers to the man. The struggle went on, and a couple of days later it was the Americans who attacked. 3rd Battalion of the 111th attacked up the high ground to the west of Rue Charletouille. The attack failed miserably, with heavy casualties and nothing to show for it. The Germans who had never stopped shelling the American-held streets and riverbank, now redoubled their bombardment. The Americans responded with their own barrage, pounding away at the high ground above Fumet for over an hour. Hoffman wrote that the Germans were actually quieted for a bit, but that the shelling then resumed. It also came with an attack on the wall at the Sentier de rempart with waves of infantry emerging out of the pear orchard above Hoffman's part of the front line. Tired beyond measure, starving, and shell-shocked, the men of the 111th now had to face a new attack that brought an old horror of the Western Front back into battle. Quote, Here they come, was shouted along the line, and many of the nearly dead men rose up to man their guns behind the wall that had almost become a part of us. Wave after wave of Germans were coming through the pear orchard. Rifles, hand grenades, and machine guns. But worst of all, the Flammenwerfers. I could see the men plainly. They had tanks on their backs, and from the end of their hoses came great masses of liquid fire shooting toward us at a distance of at least 50 yards. The smoke went far beyond us. We felt that the heat would burn us up. Every man able to fire concentrated upon the men who were operating the flamethrowers. Almost immediately, they were out of action. Their tanks perforated, and each man's body a mass of flame. The flames leapt and shot into the air. Thus was the attack stopped by the Germans' own diabolical weapon. They suffered far more than we. Never after that in the war did we encounter the type of flamethrower again. They were the real suicide squad. The men who operated those tanks were sure to suffer a terrible and quick death, unquote. With the defeat of the German attack, the 111th was spent. Bob Hoffman's company had 32 men left in it. They were relieved by the 109th Infantry Regiment that night. The next days were spent in much of the same cycle as before. The constant gunfire and shelling, the attacks... And the patrols. Doughboys worked their way to the edge of Fumet and cleared those ruins and areas there, only for the Germans to promptly reoccupy them on an almost daily basis. On the 18th of August, the French 10th Army under General Charles Mangin launched its Oise N offensive. The goal was to force the Germans to give up their ground along the N and the Velle. The lines on the Velle held even as the French and Americans hammered at the Germans and on the 21st and the 22nd, the doughboys of the 112th cleared Fumet again. Before the Allied offensive began to really make headway, the Germans launched their own attack to retake Fumet. It came on the 27th of August, after the 2nd Battalion of the 112th Infantry had relieved its sister battalion, the 3rd, late the previous evening. Company G took the western part of Fumet with the Rue charles le while Company H held the eastern end around the bridge. Men who survived the attack stated that at 4.15 a.m., the Germans unleashed a devastating box barrage on Fumet, dropping shells on four sides of the town, including along the riverbank, to cut off all means of escape. Companies G and H of the 112th, with some 230 men between them, were instantly cut off from the rest of their division. Emergency flares sent up by them went unseen amidst the morning fog and exploding shells of the enemy bombardment. Fimet, a collection of bullet-shredded and shell-shattered buildings littered with stinking corpses, trembled under the weight of iron slamming into it. The Americans were set up in combat groups in the houses and cellars of the southern part of the town. Doughboys stayed where they were in the upper floors of the ruined buildings until the shelling forced them downwards. Those already in dugouts startled involuntarily as shells impacted just feet above them. The barrage lasted somewhere between a quarter of an hour to a half hour. When it lifted, the Germans stormed into Femet from the line of houses they held at the northern edge. Later accounts would put the attacking force at around a thousand men, and all were seasoned Frontschwein, who had been pulled from the end front to deal with this little village. With hearing shattered by the bombardment and the swirling fog and smoke of the barrage, exhausted and starved from the previous weeks, the doughboys readied for the assault. Lieutenant George Riggs, an officer in Company H, faced what Bob Hoffman had said he would never face again. He and his men were near the bridge to Feme on the eastern end of the American bridgehead. Quote, As soon as the barrage lifted, The Germans began to pour down between combat groups, which were located in the second stories of the houses. We opened fire, threw hand grenades from the entrances to the cellars, and ran across the courtyard to the street, thinking that the bunch across there had formed a line along the street. There wasn't a line there, however, and the Germans were coming up the street towards the east with liquid fire, shooting at the houses on the south side of the road. We killed the first two liquid firemen. A post of about four Germans was in a shack in front of the bridge. I think we killed them all. We silenced them anyhow. The Germans continued to pour down, however. We were at a place just in front of the bridge then. Two of my men had been automatic riflemen, but had no rifles and were wounded. We were outnumbered on each flank, and we withdrew. It was getting light, and we crossed the bridge on the cover of a dense smoke. Then we continued along the road to the railroad. When the enemy started bombarding Fiemme, Lay in holes along the railroad at, for 15 minutes, then started out to find some of the companies. End quote." The American position began crumbling. Everywhere, combat became confused. Private C. H. Wright of Company G related his experiences, which capture some of that breathless chaos. Quote, "It was the wickedest barrage I ever saw, starting at about 4:30 and continuing for 15 minutes then advancing. We held our ground until it took the roof off. Then we went downstairs and kept up our observation there while in the building. But we couldn't do much observation because of smoke and fog. Then Jerry came down in big numbers. Seemed to be a sort of mob rule with no organization. They seemed to be concentrating on this one post. We pulled out of the rear of the building and dropped down. Some of our fellows were still in dugouts on account of the barrage, and we told them to get out of there. One of the men ran towards company headquarters to tell Lieutenant Schmelzer, and each man then made a fighting position for himself. Private Goodyear came from the headquarters with the word that Lieutenant Schmelzer said, stand and fight. So we turned back, and just as three of us were going out the door of the court, a bomb dropped in front. It hit Corporal Leitner, who fell on me. We bumped into two men from H Company. Then I saw another soldier near us. I thought he might be an American. But his helmet came down over his ears, and he had a potato masher in his hand. I pulled the lock on the rifle and pulled the trigger, but there was nothing in the chamber. I managed to load somehow and shot him. The Germans came up in columns of twos, bombing all the way. I took a bomb from the corporal and threw it. In the shuffle that followed, I lost my rifle. I reached for it, and it was gone. Then I hurried back, found myself in a courtyard. I went out one door and saw Germans, went out another and saw more of them, I ducked into a doorway and stood there. A bomb exploded not far away. Then I saw one of our men. He was calling for Lieutenant Landry. I saw Lieutenant Schmelzer busy with a wounded man about that time. The Bosch had us pretty well surrounded. We got down near the river and took up a position. One German came towards us and we got him, then another, and so we picked him off for a while. I started, we started cross-firing then and got more. That is where we were when the boys started surrendering. Then we beat it to the river bank, and the only thing for us to do was to run the bridge then. One man swam the river and was wounded. There were five of us who ran for it, and we got out safely. We ran up the street and theme until it turned. We knew E and F were in support. We looked for them. We saw two H company men, but they knew nothing of E and F. All I can say is that there wasn't much organization in that fight. There were men all around. Coming out of holes, doors, and windows into the street, the Americans and Germans were mixed up. We had to look hard through the fog to make out whether it was our own man or a Bosch." Unquote. With the confusion, crumbling leadership, and resulting disintegration, the doughboys were surrounded and either taken prisoner or killed on the spot. The Americans didn't just hand fumet over, though. As Private Wright recounted above, they fought as best as they could. As the German surgeons, if he met, Doughboy machine gunners cut into them viciously. A Lieutenant Joseph Landry held the western end of the Rue charles le and, with a pistol in each hand, shot down every German who came at him until a sniper took him down. Forty-four German corpses were later counted around his position. Sergeant Richard Moore sniper on the American side, lay down pinpoint fire to cover retreating Americans and it was recorded that he killed seven of the enemy in as many minutes. More died of chemical exposure the next day. As the Germans steadily eliminated the Americans house by house, many doughboys were forced to surrender. Others ran across the bridges and back into Femme. Some swam across the Vell a lieutenant turner from Company H ordered the men around him to leave and make for Femme while he covered them as he was unable to swim. Many men rose to the extraordinary occasions they found themselves in that day. In the end, outnumbered and outmaneuvered, Companies G and H of the 112th Infantry were destroyed by the German Army. 200 of the 230 men in Fumet were killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. When the last doughboys made it across the Vell, the defense line was hastily reestablished in Fiem along the southern bank. The German attack, a copy of the American attack of the 8th of August, had succeeded in wrenching Femette back. It was a shocking loss for the 112th Infantry Regiment and the 28th Division. Two admittedly understrength infantry companies had been wiped out in just a few hours. The German victory at Vimet was short-lived. Just a week later, the French-led offensive had its effect. On the 2nd of September, units of the American 32nd Division broke through at Jouvenis, therefore closing the Soissons-to-Saint-Quentin road off to the Germans. The veil front was now untenable. On the night of the 3rd to the 4th of September, German forces withdrew from Fimet and everywhere else along the Vell Front. As soon as dawn came, the 28th and 77th Divisions advanced across the river after the Germans as the latter made a fighting retreat to the end. Fimet was secured on the 4th of September, 1918. Casualties for Fiem and Fimet are difficult to pin down. In the week before the Pennsylvania men took over FEM, the 32nd Division had lost some 4,600 men in a week's worth of combat. In the period of nearly eight weeks from mid-July to September 10, 1918, the 28th Division bled out some 8,800 casualties. Of course, not all of these men were casualties due to operations in FEME and FIMET, but the 28th Division's battalions spent most of August fighting it out in those two towns. From here, the men of the 28th and the 32nd Divisions were shifted further east into the Meuse region, where they would take place in the greatest battle the United States military has ever taken part in, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. There would be more blood spilled there before the Imperial German Army and the Second Reich were finally hammered into submission and thus persuaded to accept the armistice. Questions, comments or concerns? please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at ww one podcast Check out the bfwwp website firstworldwarpodcast.com for some photos and check out. Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.